0: This is Wessler Media.
1: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. The following is a production of Westler Media, distributed on the Evergreen Podcast Network, and it contains content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Uh-oh.
2: The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. All other radio stations are not Gaza, in service at Gaza, this time. Gaza, 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 it wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle.
3: The weekend that never ends.
2: It was vulgar! <laughs> it was insane! That's
4: the greatest, the FN station of the world! We were ruling the world.
5: Dude, Cleveland is, is
3: a rock and roll city for I'm sure.
4: i about Cleveland! I'm talking about the
6: city of rock and roll!
4: They're gonna be like,
6: Sparkle. Yeah! Oh damn it! The Wrath of the mother,
2: WMMS, Cleveland.
1: From Wessler Media, this is Profiles, a podcast about the people, places, ideas, and events that make Ohio. I'm your host Vince Tornero. In this season, we're going to be talking about WMMS, the legendary FM rock station out of Cleveland that not only made history in Ohio but changed the course of music forever. It's a story that couldn't be told in one episode, so this will be part one of our six-part series called The Wrath of the Buzzard, and we're happy that you're joining us. So, if you were born after 1985 or so, the importance of radio might be lost on you, and I get it. After all, radio is just that thing your parents listen to while driving in the car. It plays commercial after commercial, and occasionally music. It seems like every time the radio's on, you hear the same few songs. It seems like the rock station in one part of the country sounds the same as the rock station in another part of the country. It sounds repetitive, safe, and stale. But it wasn't always like that. If you go back a few decades before smartphones, before the internet, radio had a much larger audience and a more significant impact on its community. More people were listening to radio back then, and stations fought harder to win your attention. To do so, they had to innovate. They had to be creative. They had to be unique. Being cutting-edge was a business model, as much as it was an on-air personality. For the longest time, AM radio ruled the airwaves. Despite its poor sound quality, it was cheaper to broadcast and could be transmitted over longer distances. But things started happening on FM radio in the 1960s with the emergence of underground freeform radio. These stations were a radical departure from the tight playlist you would get with an AM Top 40 format. The audiences for these stations were small at first, as were their budgets but it laid the groundwork for what was about to come. By the mid-1970s, FM ascension began. Rock stations that played not just the singles, but entire albums by bands increased in popularity. This album-oriented rock format meant radio stations had a huge influence on album sales, essentially acting as a gatekeeper for the music industry. Which albums were kept on rotation and which died a quick death on the turntable was at the discretion of the local DJ. Radio stations had that kind of power. But there was one station that seemed to set the trend for all other stations. One station that seemed to get the newest single first, that seemed to have the best DJs. That station was 100.7 WMMS, the buzzard in Cleveland, Ohio. Any music industry rep in the 70s or 80s would tell you that getting your record to break in Cleveland meant your record was likely going to break across the country. But if you were living in Cleveland then, WMMS was more than just a radio station. It was a lifestyle. The buzzard became a symbol for the town during a time when it needed it most. But how did this station become so iconic? How did a small group of young hippies, some from Ohio, some from Boston, against all odds and no budget, achieve such unprecedented success? And how did it all come crashing down? Well, this is the story, the rise and fall of WMMS. But before we talk about all that, we first had to pay a visit to the suburbs of Boston during the early 1960s, where two men, John Gorman and Denny Sanders, first discovered their love for this medium called radio.
4: Let's see, my name is John Gorman. I was at uh, WMMS for 13 years. I started out as a music director, got promoted to program director. A few years later, promoted to operations manager. My knowledge of radio and my education of radio was listening. I was kind of a loner kid. I was I an was only child when I was 14, 15 years old, even younger, you know, at night doing homework and all that, I would have the radio on and, you know, at night I could pick up uh, WINS and WABC out of New York, WKBW out of Buffalo, sometimes even WHK out of Cleveland. And I just get intrigued, you know, I just loved radio and, you know, just hearing these stations coming from distant areas and also listening to my favorite stations in in Boston.
5: Denny Sanders in Cleveland. I was with WMMS from 1971 to 1986. It's 119 here at WMMS from Cleveland. Denny Sanders on an all request weekend back then, there was no internet, uh, there was no home video, there was no cable television, and so the only facilities that were speaking the language of young people were certain selective radio stations. And it was a very important service to young people. It was a companion. It was a wonderful companion service. And also it was a kind of a campfire that everybody would be around. You'd go to school the next day and everybody would be listening to the same couple of stations. And you would all talk about something that you heard or something that they said or
7: an act that was coming to town or whatever
5: and it was wonderful.
7: My name is William H Bass, but I've been known as Billy Bass on the radio for all that time.
6: This is Billy on a Sunday afternoon. How are you, man? I hope you're feeling good.
7: I grew up listening to Alan Freed in Cleveland, the
6: Moondog. Hello, everybody. Hi, all tonight. This is Alan Freed, the old king of the Moondoggers. And it's time again for another of your favorite rock... And- the Moondog in Cleveland was so
7: unbelievably big. When I went to school, at recess, <laughs> we would all be out in the playground... And the only conversation that you could hear, and if you didn't hear what Moondog played on the the radio that night, you couldn't be involved in the conversation. That's all we talked about.
5: When I was a kid in the late 50s, you had one television set in the house, and the parents pretty much controlled that. So I would go into my bedroom and fire up my radio and listen to these wonderful radio shows. And when I was about maybe 11 or 12... I started dialing around and I caught one of the rock and roll stations. And I never paid too much attention to rock and roll music, but by the time I turned 11 or 12, all of those plot lines about girls suddenly made sense. So I started to enjoy that kind of music and uh, related to the DJs. The DJs were like Pied Pipers. They were like your buddies. They were on every night.
2: So my name is Donna. My last name is Halper. I was a very lonely kid growing up in Rosalindale, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. From the time I was a kid, I wanted to be in radio. I loved the DJs. I knew that the DJs made me feel better. When I was feeling depressed, when I was feeling like no one would ever accept me, they made me feel understood.
5: We had a fella named Arnie Ginsberg that was on WMEX, which was the big top 40 station in Boston. He was on live every night.
0: Friday night in Boston aching Arnie woo woo on the night train show. He was my
2: cultural hero. He inspired me to go into radio. Arnie did not have a traditional radio voice. He was like every man. You know, all the guys who didn't have deep voices and all the ladies who got told they couldn't be in radio, we all just loved Arnie. And I said to myself, yeah, that's what I wanna do. I wanna reach out to other lonely kids like me, and I wanna do that.
4: Hearing Murray Decay, I remember the first time Murray Decay played the Beatles. I just happened to be listening when he was doing that.
3: Hello, everybody. Hello everybody. This is the Beatles. the Beatles. On Murray the K's swinging Soiree show.
6: Ah,
5: Not only did they play the music that you related to, but the DJs were your were your buddies. They were there right in the radio whenever you wanted them, and you knew the broadcast was live. They didn't tape much back then.
4: I would listen to the radio, figure out what their rotations were. You know what was the was the appeal? What people liked about the stations? You know, talking to my friends uh, in those days it was AM radio was was still dominant. FM meant find me back in
3: those days. The name is Mike Michael Chesky, and uh, along with my wife Janice, we write various books about Cleveland pop culture history. FM, you know what that means? Find me. Nobody had an FM radio. Very few people had it. AM was king. You know there was no question about that. But the stuff that was happening on FM radio was the most exciting. Young people are early adapters for technology. College radio was doing a lot of folk, and they were doing like you know uh, things you know off the uh, more freeform formats.
5: Somewhere in the early 60s, my parents bought a Magnavox console stereo that had an FM radio in it. Now we had never had an FM radio, and uh, I played around with it. And in those days, most FM stations were simply simulcasting the AM. But what fascinated me was the college stations, and uh, these stations were playing jazz. This is where I first heard bop jazz, which I still love, and uh, folk music was uh, big in, on campus in those days. and uh, College stations were all playing that, so I was fascinated by it, and also fascinated by the fidelity of FM. You could hear the scratch on the guitar, you could hear the cymbals, it was wonderful. <laughs> FM album radio began in about 1967 with KMPX in San Francisco and KPPC in Los Angeles and uh, eventually WNEW FM in New York. And these stations initially were free form. That is to say, you would hear some jazz, you would hear some rock, you'd hear some folk, you'd hear a little classical music, you'd hear some spoken word, you all different kinds of music in
3: a kind of crazy quilt of color. You might have, like, a disc jockey who would get on the air, and he would play something by Musgorski, a classical piece, going into Woody Herman and the Thundering Herd, going into Buffy St. Marie, this Indian folk singer, American Indian, going into Led Zeppelin. But it flowed like one piece of music, the way it segued. It was some of the most creative radio I've ever heard. And it was happening here, much like it was in San Francisco. (music)
7: Even though there was very little FM penetration, you know, as far as the airways being available to the public, there were two stations and two DJs in town who were playing music on the FM, even though they really didn't have any audience. It was Doc Nemo and Martin Perling.
3: Doc uh, Nemo shows up in the movie RoboCop. He's the guy that comes out and says, I'll buy that for a dollar. I'd buy that for a dollar.
7: <laughs> and those two guys really started what was alternative underground radio in Cleveland. I mean, that's, I wouldn't have known anything about this whole movement if it weren't for Doc Nemo and Martin Burley. Both of these guys brokered time on uh religious FM station at night when there was nothing going on and they did programs and they played music rock music experimental music sometimes a little jazz music a little classical music but always with that uh, theater of the mind concept they were really really good at it except they had no audience they had an audience of one Doc Nemo probably played for Martin Perlick, and Martin Perlick probably did his show to entertain Doc Nemo. (laughs) Understand that FM radio was a, was a, you know, it was just a thing that broadcasting companies owned, but they didn't know what to do with it, obviously, because there were no FM radios at the time, or very few.
3: It was like, this is just ours. People don't know about it. This is, it's also was a personal relationship between you and the jock and the station. And the the disc jockeys were, you know, very low-key, you know, that sort of thing. Very FM, put it that way. Uh, Certainly not like, you know, the morning zoos that you hear now and that sort of thing.
7: These two guys were bold enough to actually purchase space on an FM radio station when nobody in town had FM radio, only just so that they could do what they they loved, which was playing and finding this kind of off-the-wall music.
3: 1968 comes around, and the rule comes down that you cannot have the same programming on AM and FM. So what are we going to put on FM?
7: Metro Media who owned WHK at the time, they were planning on simulcasting WHK AM on the FM, and then the FCC made a law against that that they had to have original programming. Metro Media owned these radio stations in New York, WNEW FM and KSAN in San Francisco, KMET in Los Angeles. So the program director of WHK-AM was given a job to imitate those stations around the Metromedia universe. And the guy's name was Pat McCoy, the program director. When he got the job, he thought, oh, great idea, great, but he didn't know anything about this underground music. And at the time, I had an underground record store in town called Music Grotto. It was right across the street from Cleveland State University. And the atmosphere of that record store was tremendous. It was what nowadays would be called a headshot. When you walked in the door, there were black light posters surrounding, you know, all four walls of the store. It uh, smelled like incense because we would burn incense. You could walk in and immediately you were in another world. You were someplace like as if you were in um, Haight-Ashbury, maybe. You, you know, you weren't walking down Euclid Avenue in Cleveland, you were, you were walking into this world. People like um, Joe Walsh, who eventually was a big deal with the, you know, with the Eagles, he, he used to play, he used to just sit in the back room and strum on his guitar. And in the store, there was a glass uh, display case and we were selling key symbols and chains and, and you could buy uh, uh, rolling papers, <laughs> you know. But underneath there were racks of records. And we were playing all this stuff and selling all this stuff that you couldn't hear on the radio. The only place you could hear any of these records were Late at Night with Doc Nemo or Martin Purley. So anyway, Pat comes over and, and he came in to learn about the music. That he now had a responsibility to play on WHKFM. He had no idea what to do. All he knew was that it was supposed to sound like WNEW in New York. Pat comes over and says, I don't know anything about this music. Can you teach me? And I said, Yeah, well, here's what, you know, here's what people are buying. And he said, You know, you got a good voice. Why don't you come on the radio? And that's really how, because I had no interest in radio whatsoever. Didn't know anything about it, and you know. And so I said, "Yeah, I'll give it a shot." <laughs> My wife went nuts. She said, "What are you doing? <laughs> you know, we have a family, and you're, you're giving up your business. You're going to give that up to go on the radio?" I said, "Yeah, you know," but she she didn't like that. But unfortunately, I had a good time.
6: This is WMMS in Cleveland. Here's something for the girls.
7: Once Pat McCoy and I took this music out of the record store and put it on the radio, now there was an audience, small again, that came from Martin Perlick's program and from uh, Doc Nemo's program. And now we had at least a little bit of a core audience. I would say maybe two or 300 people, maybe. It was a community of them. They knew each other. They, they dressed like each other. It was a, a, a real hip crowd. So we were growing, but the music itself, it was the music, the songs, you know. And at that time, it was mainly San Francisco stuff. Janis Joplin, Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, those kind of acts. And then we, we mixed that in with Dave Van Ronk blood, sweat, and tears under Al Cooper, the doors, of course. We wanted to, to broaden our audience a little bit, so it was kind of interesting trying to pull that together.
3: WHK-FM changed to its progressive rock format in August 1968, became WMMS, say, a month later, with new call letters. It started out with some visionaries. Billy Bass, who was sort of like the, the focus of a lot of uh, the things, he was sort of like the, the mind that said, we're moving toward this direction. And uh, they started out... They, they weren't selling it right away. They weren't taking off, you know, ratings-wise.
7: We gained a little bit of audience during that time. And then Metromedia snatched the rug out from underneath us. It took the format away.
5: By 1969, some genius at Metromedia in New York decided that Cleveland was too square to uh, accept a uh, progressive rock format. So they changed the format Of MMS to a bunch of different things, all, you know, top 40, and they were, I don't know, pop standards or something, who knows?
6: WMMS 1007.
7: What was going to happen to me? (laughs) I had no idea. But luckily in Cleveland, the number one radio station and by far the biggest radio station you you can imagine was Wixie 1260. (laughs) And the owner of Wixie 1260, Norman Wayne, called me up and said, you know, you, I don't know how you did it, but a lot of people know who you are and a lot of people like you. How would you like to come over here and work at Wixie? And I thought this was the craziest idea I'd ever heard. I mean, Wixie had the best top 40 jocks in the world, but Norman thought that it would be a good idea if I came over and did the all-night show. So I'm thinking, well, he asked me to do this, so let me... Let me see what I can get out of this. I said, well, I'll do it if you give me uh, Sunday nights, you know, because I knew I had to play the Wixie format. I said, if you would give me Sunday nights, give me a show from 6 to 10 on Sunday nights where I could play what I wanted to play, yeah, I'll definitely do it. He said, "Okay, you got it. So there was the beginning of broadening the audience for this kind of music. So I had this show on, on the biggest radio station in town from six to 10 on Sunday night, playing all this underground music, underground rock. And whoa, did that take off. That, I mean, it really took off. Now the format has a little bigger audience. And then a couple of years later, WNCR hired me from Wixie to come
0: over as program director. Right. My name is David Spiro, S-P-E-R-O. I started doing radio in Cleveland in 1968. Was on WNCR, which was the first of the underground radio stations in this area. At one point, it used to be called People's Radio. I mean, we were very blunt about it. This is for you. You know, we want to do what you want. I was there before Billy. I was, I was the guy that suggested bringing Billy over there. I knew Billy because I used to hang out at his record store, (laughs) and uh, he had a show that was playing a lot of the same stuff that, you know, I was playing over at uh, WNCR, and we were looking to make some changes, and I just thought Billy, with his charisma, would be the perfect person over at WNCR.
7: We had a lot of fun on WNCR, creating more and more, adding to this progressive rock audience. And, and that's what we called it at the time, progressive rock. And then uh, Metromedia decided that they'd made a mistake when they dropped the format. In
5: 1970, Nationwide put on WNCR, and they went progressive rock. Well, the gang at Metromedia said, hang on a minute. If anybody goes progressive rock in Cleveland, it's going to be Metromedia.
7: WMMR in Philadelphia, and WNEW in New York, and KMET were really growing. Now they were big stations in big markets. So Metro Media decided to try it again in Cleveland.
5: They flipped MMS back to progressive rock. Now the mistake they made was they kept the top 40 jocks who knew nothing about this music. That they were now playing.
4: Want to follow one double O seven makes you smile. We're fun loving. Fun loving.
5: <laughs> yep. Dave Moorhead, vice president of MetroMedia, knew this, and he said, "I got to get somebody with some progressive rock chops in here."
7: You hire, you know, a DJ that doesn't fit into the music; it's not going to work. And that's when they came and asked me to come back to WMMS at NCR even though I was program director NCR was all
0: corporate i didn't have the power to do what i wanted to do the upper echelon decided to change some of the rules and they thought we should be wearing ties and that we shouldn't be smoking pot in the studio and we weren't corporate you know that's not what we we were a band of hippies this wasn't a business for us it was an art form you know, you did 250 shows a, a year, you know, whatever the math is, something like that, you know. I never did the same thing twice. I felt that I brought a new day to every single show. Um, I remember Billy calling me in on Friday and saying, Hey, I worked this thing out at WMMS. Are you in? I said, Wherever you're going, I'm going. And we went.
7: I knew if I went back to Metro Media, I knew they knew how, how this format was supposed to go because they've been so successful in, in other major markets. So it was a, it was a, a chance for me to, to be able to go and do
0: what selfishly I wanted to do. We went over there and did what we were doing before. I didn't change anything. I, they had the same record library we had over at NCR. We made sure before we got there, we either brought in stuff that we needed, or had the record labels drop off, you know, six million records. There wasn't like this, uh, you know, twenty-day grace period of moving into what they're doing because that's not why we went there. We went there to do what we were already doing. You know, we got in our van and we moved up the street. Basically, that's all we did. It was a seamless segue, I guess. You know? uh, life is a seamless segue. That, that would be my T-shirt.
6: Still, there's nobody doing chops like uh, Proco Harms. This is Billy on MMS. Folks out at the closet want to say thank you to everybody uh, for participating in their early January sale. But just saying thank you is not quite enough. So what they have decided to do is extend that sale and run it through to
0: January 15. The synergy of the times really set the pace for everything. The music was so tied to the culture. You know, everybody's smoking pot, everybody's doing Quaaludes, everybody's, you know, dropping acid. And this was the soundtrack. I'm going to go play X amount of songs and X amount of hours and I'm gonna make them make sense to the audience.
6: Mary Clayton to Fanny, the Humble Pie, Stones, Cold Blood, Cactus, and of course Janice with the Full Tilt Boogie Band.
0: This is Billy on the Sunday. We were trying F- to, you know, storm. put a certain groove together for a certain amount of time. And usually we had like a, a 20 minute space where we didn't have to do any commercials. We didn't have to talk, we didn't have to do anything. I didn't care about talking. I was much more interested in, in having like the coolest segue of the day. people would actually talk to you about it. You know, they'd call up and say, I didn't even hear that song start, you know, how did you do that? You know, I could play Joni Mitchell into a little piece of classical into uh, Velvet Underground and make it work. Moody Blues were obviously fans of other classical people. So why not play that influence to bring it into Moody Blues where all of a sudden the audience can go, ah, hmm, interesting. That was cool. I didn't even know the word format, probably. I didn't even know this is a format. This is what we do. It was all done on the spur of the moment. You know, you didn't you didn't go home and go, okay, well, my first stroke when I go to the is gonna be this. No, you wait till you get there and you get the feel of it. And that's the first record you play. You know, I never knew what I was gonna play until I literally sat down listened to the last song that the person on before me was playing. I once played I Got a Feeling by the Beatles. It was a Friday afternoon. It was 5 o'clock. I was on till 6. And I realized, I want to hear that again. I played that song for a whole hour. Bam! And the phones were going crazy. The fuck are you doing? You know, if it was a sunny day, you could play music that everybody knew this is what a wonderful day we're having, you know. And if it was dark and dreary, you try and cheer them up. You know, we were always healing from Vietnam pretty much the whole time I was on the radio, you know. We spent a lot of time on the phones talking to people and getting their take on things. The phones were the most important. That was our lifeline. And, you know, I can't tell you how many people their brother, their father, their uncle, you know, was just killed in Vietnam. And I really need to hear a song by Creedence Clearwater Revival, you know, because we were much more involved in the people. We were very concerned about what was going on in our city.
3: Our radio listeners are asked to help the Cleveland Public Schools locate adults who cannot read or who are poor readers. If you know such a person, tell him that the Cleveland Public Schools are helping many adults who could never read before to learn to read. For information about free classes starting now, phone 696-2929.
0: We had ride lines, you know, where, hey, Bob's going out to San Francisco You know, looking for two people to go with them to share gas. I mean, you could never do that today. You know, we were all involved with the free clinic. We all did our stints at the free clinic, answering phones, because it was important to us. And, um, you know, we did, we put on our own shows. So like what we did is, it was never about us. You know, it wasn't about Billy Bass. It wasn't about me. For us, it was all about them. And for them, it was all about the music.
1: So despite the station's small audience in these early days, MMS jocks like Billy Bass, David Spiro, Shauna Zerbrug, and Martin Perlick were an integral part to the Cleveland counterculture with an addition to the roster in 1971.
6: Stuck inside a mobile with that Memphis blues again. Bob Dylan from Blind and Blind. Heard Denny play that song yesterday and it's, oh, what a tune, love it.
5: Well, how that happened was I needed to get going with my career. And uh, I did shows at WBCN, a few overnight shows and a couple of obscure time periods just to make some tapes that I could send out. And I did. Sent out tapes everywhere. And I got a bite. I got a bite from Metromedia. Dave Moorhead, vice president of Metromedia, we talked and he said, we need somebody to come in at night in Cleveland. And I thought, well, I don't know, Cleveland. And he said, well, you know, you never know. You get a foot into the uh, company and Next stop could be L.A. And I thought, okay. Metromedia was a major broadcast group in those days, and they owned WNEW New York and KMET in Los Angeles and KSAN in San Francisco and WMMR in Philadelphia and WMMS in Cleveland. MMS was their lowest station on the, on the market level. And uh, I was determined to get my career started. So packed up the car and moved to Cleveland. I got there in October 1971. I knew nobody here. I knew nothing about the city. I was the first
1: serious hire at MMS in the second progressive rock era. So depending on who you ask, you might get multiple definitions of progressive rock. But here's how Denny defines it. This is no official designation. It's just just my experience.
5: You kind of had three different eras of FM album radio. It started as freeform, After about 1970 or so, there were now so many acts that were rock acts and associated acts, folk rock acts and what have you, that had enough albums that you actually had enough material for a format. You really didn't in 67, 68, 69. There weren't that many albums out there that were worth playing. But by 1970, now you had a whole library full of rock albums and albums of, uh, that had a rock bass that were creative. Yes, and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and people like that. Of course, the Big Axe, Rolling Stones, The Who, and everything. You, now you had enough material to narrow it down to just progressive rock. And in that format, you played a lot of extended tracks, and uh, it was not unusual to play Material that was 12, 13, 15, 18 minutes long. That was the progressive rock era. What busted that up, and rightly so, because it was becoming a little bit indulgent, like an over-decorated Christmas tree, there was just too many ornaments on it. You know, like, gee whiz, this is supposed to be rock and roll. Here they have an orchestra and a, and a brass section and and uh, a choral group, and then uh, 18 different drums and tablas and everything else. And we'll just, hey, (laughs) wait a minute. And it became a little much. And who busted this whole thing wide open was David Bowie. (laughs) Suddenly he comes and here's these little two-and-a-half-minute chestnuts stripped down, but sophisticated. And uh, that
1: was the beginning of what I consider AOR. Before David Bowie became one of the defining trendsetters of the 70s, in the US in 1971, he was an obscure 20-something artist struggling to get attention. But starting in Cleveland, all that was about to change.
7: So here we are in 1971. We're playing the same songs basically that we were playing in 68. We were stuck in that period. Our initial core audience, we knew that we knew those people. We knew them inside out. We knew what they loved. We could blend in rhapsody and blue between a couple of rock songs, and we knew that audience that we had, but loved that. But this new audience that was demanding and it got a over and over and over and over again. We didn't like them that much. It was driving us crazy. It was especially driving me crazy because I didn't know how to deal with it. So I'm I'm in my office and I'm frustrated because I don't know what in the world to do. I'm so upset by our growing audience. And we tried to figure out what are we going to do to broaden this audience now? Because here we are playing the same old stuff over and over again. We're not getting any new things. And then Denny Sanders, who went on to be a brilliant uh, programmer, was our music director at the time. And he brought me this album.
5: I was music director of the station at the time. And Chuck Dembrick, who was the RCA local representative, came into my office and he said, "Uh, I want you to hear something. And he had this test pressing that had a blank label. And he says, listen to this. It was the Hunky Dory album. And the first thing he played was Changes. And I said, that's wonderful. Who is this? And he said, I'll tell you in a little bit. And then he played Life on Mars, which absolutely knocked me out. And I thought, this is fabulous. Who is this? Tell me. You got to tell me. He says, well, it's David Bowie. Now, the name rang a bell because Bowie had made some recordings before, but they weren't fully developed, and he went away and retooled and came out with the Hunky Dory album, and now he's mature, and I thought it was wonderful. So I went to Billy Bass, who was program director in those days, and I said, Billy,
7: you've got to listen to this album. Then he comes in and says, do you have a minute? I said, yeah, why? He says, because I think I found something that you might like. And I said, okay, well, let me hear it. He put on "Honky Dory," opens with "Changes," right? Now here I am, 29 years old, and here this guy is singing about changes, and 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 there's a line that comes in the song that says, "Look out, you rock and rollers!" Look out, you rock and rollers. Pretty soon now you're gonna get a little older. Soon now, you're gonna get older. Man, did that hit me upside in the head? Just that, just hearing that, hearing him sing that verse, I said, yeah, it's, I'm gonna go through some changes. And I'm going through these changes now right now. You know, I'm feeling it. And I said, Denny, you know, it's so good. Is it, what are we gonna do? It, 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 play another track. <laughs> And part of, part of our um, philosophy was I wouldn't play or program an artist that just had a, one good song. The album had to be good. So we tried, to, we tried to make sure that everything we played came from an album that was worth buying. And I listened to that album and I couldn't believe how good it was and how important it was gonna be for us to be able to play something outside of what we normally play play something that would satisfy our existing audience and bring on a new audience. And that's exactly what the David Bowie did.
5: Billy Bass fell in love with it. And he mobilized the resources of the radio station to get behind David Bowie.
0: You know, when we first started playing Bunky Dory, people had never heard stuff like this before. I mean, you know, it's uh, it was mind-blowing.
7: Cleveland really took to David Bowie. And the next thing you know, the Belkin
0: Production Company brought in David Bowie. We would have a weekly meeting with the Belkins, who were the biggest promoters in town. And they would say, so what's, you know, what, what's happening on the phones? This guy, David Bowie, you've got to get him here. Every other request for three weeks has been David Bowie. The first show David Bowie ever did in the United States, Cleveland, Ohio, at Music Hall. That was a 3000 seater. His average venue that he played was 800 seats. He came back and sold out uh, public hall, which is 10,000 seats to end his tour. So he had sold 13,000 seats in Cleveland with nobody even knowing who the hell he was. That's how strong the record was. That's how strong MMS was. This is
7: all happening in Cleveland. And the whole no, nobody outside of London England knows about David Bowie. You know next thing you know David Bowie's a big deal all over the world. But it all started in Cleveland like this take credit for that.
1: And that would not be the last time the station was on the forefront of breaking an act like Bowie. But remember Denny's plan to move to Cleveland with the hopes of moving up the Metro Media company ladder? Yeah, about that. As these
5: things happen in the broadcasting
1: business, I, I
5: got to Cleveland. Figuring I'll, you know, uh, get a toehold into Metromedia, and maybe they'll like me, and maybe I'll end up at uh, New York or L.A. or San Francisco or something. And uh, six months later, they sold the radio station. <laughs> they sold it to Milt Maltz, Mall Wright Broadcasting, out of uh, Michigan.
3: Uh, originally, he was from Chicago, and uh, he was uh, always fascinated by radio as far as everything I've ever heard and even in my conversations with him. And he had owned some small stations. In fact, I think one of them was like a farm station. But when he came to Cleveland, um, you know, he was looking for stations. He was looking for stations that, frankly, were in trouble. And he buys WHK. The story that I heard, and I don't know the exact numbers on this. The story I heard is that Mill Maltz, who's a very smart business guy, negotiated to buy WHK for several million dollars because AM was the moneymaker. And they threw in WMMS for a buck. Well, apparently... Metro Media was really upset because they thought that WHK was worth a lot more money. Who cares about MMS?
0: Nobody cared about FM radio, to tell you the truth, you know, business-wise.
3: Milt Maltz came to town, came to Cleveland, and mind you, he has to go home and tell his wife, by the way, we're going to move from Chicago. We're going to Cleveland. (laughs) He came to Cleveland, took over the station. He was actually thinking about a different kind of format. Milt came in. And uh,
5: in those days, WMMS really didn't have any ratings. It was quite early. And uh, Milt never had a rock station before. He had these small stations up there in Michigan and other places. And uh, he didn't see any ratings with the MMS. So he decided, never made a formal announcement, but we kind of knew it, that he was going to change it to uh either beautiful music or country there was two rumors going around i think it
1: was beautiful music beautiful music which you might know as elevator music it was cheap you could automate it and
5: you know hell nobody's listening to fm anyway you know at least we can get some stores during the day that was the thought process back then and uh what happened was There was a public outcry about the rumor that they were going to change the format of the station. We didn't have a very big audience, but it was a very vocal and
1: loyal audience. So they raised hell about the license. So an FCC rule at the time stated that a new owner could not change formats if enough of the community petitioned to keep it. The small but loyal group of listeners doubled the amount of signatures needed, saving WMMS. There was a catch, though. If the station wasn't profitable after one year, owner Milt Maltz would be granted permission to change formats. Milt Maltz said, Okay, tell you what, I'll give you a year to make some money with this thing. If we're making a profit in one year,
3: we'll keep this format.
1: With only a year to make it, how exactly does Denny and the rest of the staff plan on proving to Maltz that this format is worth keeping? And when crucial on air talent leaves WMMS, who's going to replace them? That's on the next episode of Profiles: The Wrath of the Buzzard. The Pride of Cleveland on WMMs. Got my mind on the cruising with
5: the
1: this season of Profiles is titled "The Wrath of the Buzzard" and is a Westler Media production. I'm Vince Tornero, host, executive producer, and interviewer, along with my dedicated producer and co-writer Kevin Skubak. He edited, arranged, sound design, and mixed this series, as well as recorded what he calls Needle Drop Knockoffs for this production. Big thanks to all of our guests, Billy Bass, John Gorman, Donna Halper, Michael Olszewski, Danny Sanders, and David Sparrow. Special thanks to two guys, John Gorman and Michael Olszewski. They spent a lot of time with us and supplied much of the additional audio that you hear. Additional supporting audio also supplied by Danny Sanders, Joel Frensdorf, Art Volo, and Matt Wardlaw additional production audio from Universal Music Group and SoundSnap want to thank Alex Bevin for the use of the Buzzard song that's our closing tune if you like there's a few more ways we'd recommend that you learn more about this great radio station John Gorman's book The Buzzard and Michael Shesky's two books Cleveland Radio Tales and Radio Days if you can help it do not buy it off Amazon support a great Cleveland publisher Grain Company by using the link in the show notes this season's podcast cover art is an original creation by the artist David Helton He's got some great merch and buzzard shirts for sale. We've got links to those stores in the show notes too. Time for some disclaimers. We are not affiliated, associated, authorized, endorsed by, or in any way officially connected with 100.7 WMMS, its ownership, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Any audio, individuals, product names, logos, brands, and other trademarks or images featured on or referred to within this podcast or its website are the property of the respective trademark and copyright holders appearance on this podcast does not imply endorsement final notes if you haven't already leave us a five-star rating and share this podcast with a friend or family member for Westlore media i'm vince tornero thanks for listening and now it's time for me to punch out wash up and head home